Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week, Don launched this current series, which is entitled Sailing True in a Culture Storm, in which he said, random events and changes are coming at us so fast that for many, the world seems quite out of control. He cited as examples of this COVID-19, which has caused more than 15 million deaths worldwide and counting. Along with this, he referenced the impact of climate change has arrived faster and harder than we anticipated. So-called 100-year events seem to be happening on a weekly basis, and now they're speaking about a 1,000-year events happening, it seems, every other month. There seems to be trouble with fires and floods, and global temperatures seem to be rising. Currently, Europe is seeing the worst drought since records begun, and talking to people back in Europe is completely unprecedented, and for many, it is quite scary. And of course, the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia in February this year was for many the last straw. The pandemic, the violent collision of competing world global vision, of globalization, massive cultural and technological changes have impacted our world at breath, neck, speed. And we are reeling under the complexities of all these changes, both as a country, as a world, but also as the church. Don added, much of what was reliable and predictable is no longer so. The environment looks more like a seascape than it does a landscape. A sea change of transitions have meant that we've moved away from what we call terra firma, and he gave us the illustration of being tossed around on aqua firma. Navigation on land is incredibly predictable. There are familiar, well-delineated landmarks. There's mountains and rivers and hills and gullies. But by contrast, water is ill-defined, uncertain, and is in a constant state of change. There are no fixed points on a seascape to which we get our bearings. The wave that was there one minute has gone literally the next second and has completely disappeared within 10 seconds. And this is what we face today in our world. It seems to be a changing seascape. Is there anything to navigate by? Is there any fixed point to which we can get our bearings as people? What on earth is happening? How do we live and be disciples of Jesus Christ? How do we, his church, survive and thrive and grow in such a seascape? that is attempting to throw us off course. And in these series, which we started last week, and I think it goes for another four, we will look at how we navigate and sail through such a seascape. And today I want to develop further this theme and consider our attitude, our approach to the cultural seascape that we are in and we will face in the future. And in so doing, I want to look at our willingness as seafarers, to keep going with the analogy in this context, to take risks. I believe that we need to be a people that have been willing to take risks. Today, seafarers in the natural and those who work at sea are more likely to lose their lives at work than those in most other occupations. 
including dangerous jobs such as construction and mining, information from fisheries administrations and fisheries organizations globally indicate that deaths at sea are on the rise. In many parts of the world, especially in developing countries, reliable and comprehensive statistics on accidents at sea are lacking, but an often globally quoted figure for life that is lost at sea or to do with working at the sea is somewhere in the area of 24,000 a year. You know, the actual number could be higher. Weather conditions from winter storms in the Northern Hemisphere to tropical hurricanes in the Atlantic, cyclones in the Indian Ocean and typhoons in the Western Pacific take ships and lives in all parts of the industry. Sailors are risk takers. And if this is true today, then this is especially true of early sailors. In early water transport, boats were made of reeds, bound logs, inflated and treated goatskins, to mention just some ways. To venture out to sea in such vessels was an incredibly risky <laughs> business, regardless of what the vessel is made of. Any venture to sea involves some degree of risk. The only boat that was claimed to be risk-free sank on its maiden voyage back in 1912. Sailing, especially on this open sea, has inherent dangers and risks. And it takes faith to get on board. Boarding, the word boarding and the analogy was one of Martin Luther's favorite definitions of faith. He said the following, the person who doesn't have faith is like someone who has to cross the sea, but is so frightened that he does not trust the ship. And so he stays where he is and is never saved because he will not get on board and cross over. To navigate and sail and negotiate successfully in a postmodern and hopefully post-COVID New Zealand, it is going to require of us to be willing to be risk takers, I believe individually, but especially as a church. And it carries with it dangers not of the life-threatening variety of being on the sea, but I believe that as we go forward and we navigate the new seascape of life, we're going to have to get used to making wrong decisions, making mistakes, and running the risk that other people will misunderstand us. We live in a changing world. I'm not sure where you fall on the risk scale, whether you consider yourself to be a risk-taker or are risk-adverse. I definitely definitely fall on the risk-adverse side. I prefer, prefer predictability and the comfort that comes with being incredibly boring. And that's where I stay and I feel safe. And sometimes I have to challenge myself about taking risks. I hit 60 last January and I've been thinking a lot about the next 10 years of my life. What do I do? And I have to really be honest and say I want to take the risks in my life for the next 10 years because who knows what I've got left, but I want to be a risk taker in order to allow God to fulfill all that he wants to do in my life. It needs to be said, however, that there is a genuine difference between genuine faith and risk and actual stupidity. Sad to say, but the body of Christ has all of them. 
The difference between faith and risk is a fine line, but that is a message for another day. Ironically, if I was to ask you or the ordinary person in the streets to make a list of organizations that you consider to be risk-taking, cutting-edge in their thinking, I am not sure that many of us, if any at all, would have the church on that list. First of all, it's seen as politically and morally conservative. It is enamored and rooted in tradition, especially denominational tradition, or just the way things have always been done. It is known to be slow to change. It is paralyzed very often by bureaucracy and by committee. There's a committee for virtually everything in churches. That's the perception. Actually, Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal's thesis about the six components that made the genocide possible in the 30s in in Germany lists bureaucracy right up there after hatred and dictatorship. Avoidance of risk is a sacred principle of bureaucracy, slow to change culture. And we do not want to be a, a church that goes into this next generation or this next season that is tied down by bureaucracy. Leonard Sweet <laughs> said these words, to postmoderns, the contemporary Christian church is a relic of a bygone era, a monument to religious sentiment in the past, but largely irrelevant to the vital pri- pilgrimage they have embarked on. He continues, those expressions of spirituality which are demonstrated by the church are regarded as shallow and repressive. Christians appear dogmatic and rigid and unwilling to explore spirituality or learn from their experience. Wow. And some may well ask, why should this bother or concern us? Because what is it to us what they, whoever they are, think? Well, I would like to suggest that a lack of willingness to take risks, whoever we are or whatever we represent, is in marked contrast to Jesus Christ. In marked contrast to Jesus Christ, who founded the church and intended it to model its ministry on his own, which was considered out there on the edge and risk-taking. Jesus, in his living and in his thinking and his teaching, was considered by the religious people of the day to be a high risk-taking individual, and they arranged to have him done away with for this very reason. Put it out there now, and we'll come back to it in this message. I believe that God wants us to be risk-takers, as born-again, spirit-filled, Christ-centered people, not called to reckless, ill-advised, or thoughtless actions, but prayerful, seeking wisdom, and guidance, but not timid, fearful, and reluctant to try. My experience now after 40 years as a pastor is that very little, if anything, of significance in an individual or the life of a church or the life of a family or an organization really happens without risk being involved. Nothing really happens of significance unless there's a certain amount of doubt, uncertainty, and risk involved. And I want this to happen in our lives and in our faith community. I want us to be able to accomplish things that we've never dreamed of for the cause of Christ. 
And I can reassure you that you don't have to be some super spiritual or special person in order for God to use you in extraordinary risk-taking situations, but it will involve you being willing to take a risk. See, Jesus was the master of taking risks. And one of the ways he did this most often was with people. He constantly challenged and invited his disciples and followers to think about and look at people and situations differently and with new perspectives. <laughs> Zacchaeus, Jesus took a risk with this man. Whilst all around saw him as a despicable little tax collector and a, Ro a Roman lackey, Jesus saw a needy and spiritually hungry individual. The, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, the, the disciples could not see past the fact that she was female and she was a Samaritan. Jesus saw beyond race and gender to a precious, deeply hurt individual who would turn out to be an incredible evangelist. <laughs> in Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke 7, the woman comes in and pours ointment on his feet. Simon and the, other, Simon and the others there saw her only as a sex worker or a prostitute. And Simon says in his heart, I now know that this man is not a prophet. Oh, how wrong was he indeed. Jesus clearly saw things in people that others did not. He was willing to look past the obvious and see something that was worth taking a risk on. A quote by a Hungarian, and if you know anything about uh, Central European languages, Hungarian's one of the hardest, so I'm not even going to pronounce his name, so it'll be on the screen if you want to follow it out. He says, discovery or risk consists of looking at the same thing everybody else does and thinking something different. I believe that's what Jesus did. You see, Jesus forced his disciples to think outside their comfortableness and their categorized and their conditioned way of thinking. He was willing to risk messing with people's lives and people's way of doing things, and ultimately, it led him to a cross. How is it that such a unique and radical, risk-taking individual has produced an organization known for its attitudes that are more akin to the Pharisees Jesus opposed than to its founder? And I mean the church. I particularly love the following. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus instructed his disciples to occupy, he says, until I come. Luke 19, 13 says, occupy until I come. <laughs> this doesn't mean just exist. This does, doesn't mean hang in there. This just doesn't mean that just take no risk, take up space, and just hang in there, kids. See, the Greek word occupy has the idea of busying oneself with trade. That's what it means. Thea translates it to carry on the business of a banker or a trader. It's a great way of looking at it. Carry on the business of a banker or trader. Trading and banking both contain an element of risk. You can't be a banker, you can't be a trader without risk. The two just go together. They have to be one, and to, one together. It is, po it is possible to lose and to gain, but it does involve risk. One thing is certain, if you don't invest, if you don't risk, there is never a possibility of getting a return. Unwilling to take risks, we end up like the fearful servant in the parable Jesus told, who hid his talent in the earth rather than taking the risk of investing it. 
If we want to live a life in both the natural and spiritual level that most of us, I believe, long for, then the elimination of risk will ensure that we won't. Many of us want the return that risk-taking produces without having to take the risks. See, as we discuss and ponder what society, what culture, what church will be like in this seascape illustration, we do know that church is going to be different and difficult to navigate. I came across a lovely Belgian proverb that says, unless you have sent one out, it is no use to wait for your ship to come in. The the ship of our lives, our faith community in this next season, this next decade, is never gonna come in unless we send it out first and we risk things as we look to build discipleship, as we look to, lo- uh, to win a lost community. There is a fascinating and overlooked, often overlooked or quickly read over a few verses in Judges 5 verses 12 to 18 that I wanna draw your attention to. It's known as the Song of Deborah. The Song of Deborah is known as a victory hymn sung by Deborah and Barak. The story behind it is that, that when Deborah and Barak went to the battlefield, God gave them the promised victory. And as a result, the joy is so great, the, the gratitude is so deep, that these two heroes compose a song of praise to God, singing it with all their hearts, declaring the glory of God, and calling on the name of the Lord God of Israel. And verse 12 starts off, it says, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abimham. Then down marched the remnant of the nobles, the people of the Lord marched down for him against the mighty. From Ephraim, they set out into the valley following you. Benjamin with your kin, from Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulon those who bear the marshal's staff. The chiefs of Issachar came after Deborah, or came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed out at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Why did they tarry among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan and Dan. Why did he abide with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, settling down by his landings. Zebulon is a people that scorned death. Naphtali too at the heights, on the heights of the field. You see, these verses review the responses of the tribes during the crisis with the Canaanites. See, the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, Zebulon, Issachar, and Naphtali were all blessed because they mustered and went to battle. Reuben, Gilead, Dan, and Asher were reproved for their lack of participation. They refused to do anything. And it says something quite fascinating and insightful about Asher in verse 17. It says this, Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Asher continued by the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Moffat translation puts it like this. Asher sat still by the seashore, clinging to his creeks. It's quite an irony here, isn't it? Sitting by the sea, clinging to the creeks, sitting by the large, clinging to the small. 
Asher played safe when there was a call to step out and risk. He was, as another writer, or as Leonard Sweet, I should say, says it, he was creek-minded instead of being sea-minded. He gave himself to the marginal and refused to take risks. Perhaps the church can be charged with the same offense. We have created a harbor culture instead of a sea culture. It can be seen for most of us that the more distance life puts between us and childhood, the more difficult risk seems to be. The older we are, the harder it is for us to take those leaps of faith, to step out, run the risk of trial and error and getting it wrong. T.S. Eliot wrote, only those who risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. (laughs) Some today, or maybe listening to this on podcast, have dreams about your life and your ministry, but you haven't told a soul because you fear their reaction. You you just don't want to risk it. Some of you have songs of worship in your head that you've never put on paper. There are some here who have a prophetic gift and the fear and risk of getting it wrong keeps you silent. Some of you have a painting that has never been put on canvas. You have a dream job, but you can't run the risk to give up your job and go for the one that you really, really want. There are some of you who want to run marathons, but you've never taken the first step. There are some of you who want to explore missions, go see missionaries, see the things across the world, but you've never booked the ticket. Some haven't shared the gospel with a family member or a friend because you fear their rejection. But when you talk about it, or when you share those dreams with it, your, your face comes alive, your spirit comes alive, your eyes dazzle with excitement, and your body comes to a real sense of a crescendo. But that's as far as it goes, because you're not willing to take the risk. One writer commenting on risk puts it beautifully and provocatively when he says, by removing eternal risk, Christ calls his people to temporary and earthly risk. For the followers of Christ, the risk is gone. After many conversations, perhaps this is how it goes in our head. We go like this, I have not taken the risk in an important of my area because I'm afraid of, and it goes like this, I will lose a relationship. Are you sure? Well, someone will get mad at me. Ah, well. I might hurt somebody's feelings. Well, those feelings might well need to be hurt. I might fail. You know, you might, you might not. I might be disappointed. Well, that is possible. Well, if you are, call a friend, go and have a coffee and get over it. I will not be in control. Absolutely correct, wonderful. I don't know what will happen next. Superb. But those things limit us so much in the area of taking risk. One of the biggest risks I believe we face as a faith community going forward is the willingness to, as it were, step out and take risks, to take the lessons that we've learned from COVID and even those that we don't know that we've learned thus far and learn from them. Not to live in the past of some ideal, oh, this church, remember before COVID, it was wonderful and all that. That was perhaps only ever in our mind. And we have to embrace what the future has for each and every one of us and decide to embrace what God has for us. 
the predicament that many find in church today is that so many are apprehensive, are scared to take risks, are risk averse, are distracted by the important, consumed by neglecting the marginalized. And friends, we as a church and we as a faith community need to be willing to take risks so that God can allow what he wants to do in this new seascape through us. So as we land this, I just want to very quickly leave you with four risks that I believe we need to consider to help us navigate this current gray zone, as Mark Sayers puts it. The first risk I believe that we need to take is to believe in a bigger gospel. Some have said that we have domesticated the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the most revolutionary, world-changing news and it has turned it into an occasional Sunday attendance with an intermittent midweek commitment. The risk of, being, of becoming or believing a bigger gospel goes like this, that Jesus Christ truly demands all of us, that his lordship is clear, his victory is secure, and the breadth of his visible reign will one day sweep the planet just as the breadth of his invisible reign covers it now, that he invites us to be part of his army, servants in his cause, and friends in his fight. But in a bigger gospel, the invitation is not to be faint-hearted. However, it demands change at the most fundamental levels of our life. It alters our perception of the world. It changes our understanding of ourselves. It changes for most of us the reason why we are here on earth and what he has called us to do. It is not simply a call to pray and pray and carry on before with a bit of religious observance thrown in. We must never remove the, incon the inconvenience and the confrontational nature of the cross that we need to tell people that they do need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb and that he demands our life and our all. And this is not some, some clarion call to fundamentalism, but there are some things that are fundamental that we cannot lose in all that we do. We must not be fearful to risk telling and reminding people that sacrifices are required or about the pain of cross-carrying and in so doing remind us that there is a cross to carry. Jesus calls us to carry a cross. He calls us to turn our back on the world as we once knew it and engage in the world that he is making. Let us be risk-taking people that he demands our total and his lordship is undeniable. But you know, that leads into risk-calling people to a discipleship. If the gospel is bigger than many have made it, and if we are navigating a seascape, then the rules have changed. If Jesus didn't come just to make us happy and get us over the line into eternity, but rather to change the world, then following him is about joining him in doing this. This is what we're about. It's about a discipleship that he wants us to follow him. If we are following him, we need to seriously look at what words like discipleship, worship, servanthood, ministry, and if I can be allowed to say it, commitment to a master really, really mean. Such a huge subject and we touch upon it lightly today, but discipleship is not that just an emotion or feeling driven. 
Like many of the great principles at the heart of the Christian faith, discipleship is a decision, not just an emotion. If you imagine our life being simply made up of a two-carriage train, one of the carriages is faith and the other being feeling, only one carriage can be the engine. And for a lot of people who profess Jesus, the engine of their life is their feelings. Now this is okay as long as our feelings are on track. The issue is, however, that very often our feelings are not on track, so a train wreck will happen. Thirdly, risk being countercultural and not just a subculture. <laughs> I love the verses of Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. There are many who take it, for the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. You know, for many years, I would say we have been here just coming up, we're about to start our 10th year. I believe that the New Zealand that we came to is different to the New Zealand today. I believe it has been a sea change over the last number of years. And for many years, Christianity has appeared as a subculture in New Zealand. And I believe that these days are over and we have to think about it differently, the role of the church. For years, this was true. But now we have to adjust our thinking and realize that we are no longer a subculture and we have to be countercultural. You may ask, what's the difference? Well, the critical distinction is how a member of the subculture or counterculture perceives themselves in relation to the predominant culture. A subculture sees themselves as part of a group, identifying with and as a subsection of it. A counterculture person sees themselves outside the prevailing culture and their plan or their desire is to march to a different beat, often with the aim of changing the predominant perspective. These subculture years for the church, as I said, I believe are drawing to a close here in New Zealand if they've not already happened. Like it or not, the church, we are less and less established and welcomed as part of the main thrust of our society. We're no longer welcomed. We're no longer really considered to be of any significance. And we are seen as outdated, judgmental, and a dangerous force in New Zealand society. It seems to me that the lie offered to many followers of Christ is that the culture we live in today has something to offer us in the first place. We should, of course, always move and engage with kindness, grace, wisdom, and wit when we engage people. And we should always be relevant and graceful, but we don't have to be similar. We are called to be countercultural. And moving on quickly. Musicians, please come and join me. <laughs> Risk letting the future shape us. Last week, Don quoted Mark Sayers, who says that we are living in this gray zone. We are moving from an old era into a new era. Truly, not once in a lifetime, maybe once in 10 generations times. You see, one of the reoccurring themes of Paul was that he says, you know, I had a great past. I had a great past. I was the outstanding Jew. I was this, I was circumcised. I was doing all those things. And that was absolutely important to him. And he said how marvelous it was. But in fact, he says they were all, and most translations translated like this, that was rubbish compared to the future. 
Let me close by explaining what I'm trying to say here. We need to guard against Christianity being focused on our heritage and not on our legacy. That somehow we have to walk forward without constantly looking back, individually and corporately, allowing God to shape our futures. In sporting terms, in sporting terms, asking God to help us play, play what's in front of us and be excited about it. Play what's in front of us and be excited about it. That if we are in a gray zone, that we need to respond to the challenges and the changes and securities it brings. Not because of ourselves, but because of our kids and our grandkids and the generations to come. You see, our future is their future. And we must work hard and in tandem with the Holy Spirit to make sure that there is a legacy of faith and church passed on to them and not just one that is in the history. You know, we may not be the generation that sees phenomenal revival and breakthrough. That's not my prayer. My prayer is that in my lifetime I will see another breakthrough and another revelation of the glory of God. But we can pass on to them in a post-COVID post-Christian New Zealand, a church that is thriving and exciting and is just taking people on a journey with God and changing and transforming society. But the challenge is to allow the future to shape us, to, despite the unknowns, allow us to face the future and say, God, what do you want to do? Not so worried about our past or where we've come from, not that that is incredibly anything less than wonderful. But we say, God, we want to hand something on to the next generations. These days, we don't know what they're like. We don't know what's happening. We don't really know where we're going to be. We're on a seascape of chaos and change, and we don't know what we're doing. But we want to be a people that do something under you to pass on to our kids a legacy so that when God chooses to break through again in his power and his majesty and revival, that they are ready for it and we have played our part in it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.